0: psalm 130 verse 1 through 8 let's give our attentive hearing this is god's word out of the depths i cry to you o lord o lord hear my voice let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy if you o lord should mark iniquities o lord who could stand but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word today and calling us to worship you. God, this is um, your time to feed us with what you will. So God, uh, open our mouths wide, our hearts, and uh, Lord, feed us uh, your truth, and also feed us with your grace. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. So we're continuing our series in... Uh, why we do what we do. We're covering each aspect of our worship service and um, looking at how these elements are drawn from Scripture. And today we're landing on confession and assurance. Here's how our uh, catechism defines repentance. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism defines repentance as a saving grace that leads to life when a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and awareness of the mercy of God, turns from it to God, with grief, grief, and hatred of his sin, purposing and working towards new obedience. And if that sounds just really Christianese, you're not alone. Uh, we're gonna try to unpack that through this psalm, Psalm 130. It's a good place to turn to. How to unpack? How does God invite us uh, to confession, and how does he reassure us? You know how in the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus gives us, this is how you should pray, right? The Psalms are often the Old Testament way of saying, this is how you should pray too, or this is how you should confess. Um, This is how you should also repent. So let's dive into Psalm 30. I'm going to explore this with you with uh, the following three points. The, The problem that we must confront when we repent The person we must address when we repent, and the mission we must carry out having repented. All right? So, the problem we must confront, the person we must address, the mission that we must carry out having repented. Okay? These three points. So, first, the problem uh, that we must confront. Notice how the psalmist starts in verse one Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths I cry. Uh, Right there, what you have is sort of the immediate setting where this repentance is coming from. It's the depths. What are the the depths? It's Hebrew word for deep sea, uh, deep waters, which can be a helpful imagery if you think about it. Uh, Deep water. I can think of a few horror movies that are based in that setting because it communicates immediately something that's dreadful, something that's lifeless, and there's no rescue. I mean, you're already sunk. You're at the bottom. You're in the depths. Um, Even if you were to cry out, right, with all your strength, uh, cry out to your loved ones, cry out to the proper authorities. No one's coming to your rescue. You're in the depths. And that's what it feels like for the psalmist here to uh, be in in penitence, in confession. This is his personal, internal uh, setting. He's in the depths. And if you zoom out also for a moment, right, um, get slightly meta for a moment, there's an external universal setting here as well. The psalmist is acknowledging indirectly that he lives in a morally meaningful universe where moral laws exist. They're true. They're not arbitrary. And therefore, the sense of guilt that we often feel can be true as well. Your conscience does reflect something in reality. The good news there is, because there is a way of discerning true guilt, you can also discern what's false guilt and deal with that as well by not dealing with it, okay? He's dealing with the moral reality that he's confronted with, and he's figuring out, is this true guilt I'm feeling? Well then I better confess it, I better deal with it. On the other hand, if it's not true guilt, right, he'll probably say, well forget that, I will not deal with that, and that's how he deals with it, right? So there's an internal personal setting of the heart, and there's an external universal setting of the moral law. Repentance repentance is something you do in such a setting. There's no point of repentance if there is no conscience that corresponds to reality, to an actual moral law that exists, that governs the universe. In a world where there is no God, there's simply this Darwinian jungle we live in, in this evolutionary world, I can simply do what I want to do and live the way I want to live, and however I feel about it, it's just fine. And in that world, all guilt is false guilt. right? All guilt is false guilt because morality is made up, and the the points don't matter. But the psalmist here acknowledges that that's, that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where we can feel a deep sense of this alienation from the true moral law, and therefore uh, alienation from the moral law giver. And if that is the world that you find yourself living in, repentance has to be a vital language, um, a daily language and practice, or you wouldn't be living in reality at all. You wouldn't be living in a moral world. Repentance becomes a vital part of our our language and, and way of life. So the setting alone here is helpful, right? Because it gives us, even as it confronts us with a problem, something truthful. This is us. This is our world. And we need repentance, um, the language of repentance, to live truthfully and hopefully in such a world. Um, What we also see from verse 1 is what repentance is not. Okay, Repentance is not lifting ourselves up out of the pit of despair right he's, he's not climbing out of the depths on his own this is therefore right not the sort of god helps those who help themselves type of message is it right the bible is saying the opposite right god is here inviting us to confess as people who absolutely cannot help ourselves that's the prayer of repentance Prayed from an utterly helpless uh, place. Someone who's hit absolute rock bottom. You've tried everything else. There's no change. You've turned to everyone. They can't help you. You have one cry left, and that's your cry to God. That's verse 1. That's the the starting point of this true biblical repentance. And then here's what verse 2 says. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Let your ears be attentive. Why is he crying out for mercy? What does that imply? Uh, What is the implication of asking for mercy and not, let's say, uh, justice or fairness or vindication? Why is he crying out for mercy? What that implies is, I'm the one at fault, right? Uh, I'm responsible the way he opens up his repentance is God I'm not here to blame anyone else I'm here because I believe my biggest problem is me I'm here because the log in my eye is way bigger than the speck in my neighbor's eye he doesn't blame another person he doesn't blame his nurturing he doesn't blame his parents he doesn't blame his education he doesn't blame his environment. He doesn't blame the, the systems that brought him up. He's saying, ultimately, I'm a product of my own heart, ultimately, not a product of anything else. So true biblical repentance right, is, is not merely confessing what we've done. I mean, we really don't know what, what he's done. But we get a strong sense of what he believes he is. We, we get a sense that he's confessing his own heart, bearing his heart before God, saying, more than what I've done and, and much more than what others have done to me, my problem is who I am. The problem is me. I'm the problem. Okay. And it does sound a lot like Taylor Swift and her song, Antihero. I don't know if you heard that yet. I mentioned this, I think, some time ago. She goes, I, I should not be left to my own devices. They come with prices and vices. I end up in crisis. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. That's the refrain, and I appreciate. I think we can appreciate that because, in a way, what that helps us do is it break. It breaks us out of this false positivity that we've been inculcated with for so long. To live with good vibes only, <laughs> to to never feel guilty. To um, to not feel bad at all about anything we do or anything we identify with, to have our self-esteem constantly coddled. I think what we're realizing now as a culture is that that kind of false positivity does not uh, lead us to flourish. It actually suffocates us. Uh, Why? Because deep down we know we're not being truthful about our flaws. If I'm loved only because my flaws were always hidden, because I've never confronted and I've always avoided confrontation, then deep down I think we would know that love is shallow. It's a shallow love. And we know the people who know us best would also know the things that we want to hide from. They know what we want to hide from. And hiding from the whole truth of who we are isn't freedom, right? That's actually it's the opposite of freedom. It's, that's, the, that's what shame is, isn't it? When you must live with something to hide. Um, you're afraid of being fully seen. Right? In order to have this true love, we have then this inherent need to be truly known and truly seen for who we are. That's vital. But that comes with the problem of rejection, becoming an outcast because of our sins. And the, like you know, Taylor Swift says, the prices of our own devices and vices. Okay. Um, The problem to be confronted is me, who I am. I'm my anti-hero, right? So there's some common grace knowledge there um, in in Taylor Swift, right? However, uh, there is one major difference between Taylor Swift, the cultural psalmist, and scriptural psalmists, and that is who they are addressing. Okay, that's the second point. Uh, the person that we must address in our uh, repentance. If you watch the music video to Anti Hero, uh, when Taylor Swift opens the door, who's standing outside saying, It's me, hi, I'm the problem? It's herself. It's herself. It, the song is essentially an internal dialogue. She's addressing herself with her own guilt and her own shame. And in her own words, that spirals down to her depths, her depression because she's only listening to her own voice. But that's not what the scriptural psalmist is left with, is it? Take a look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. When the psalmist opens the door, there's God. And he's saying uh, to him, God, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem, God. Hear my pleas for mercy. Notice how adamant he is about addressing no one else here but God. And seeing even his own reflection in light of how God sees him. Lord, if you mark my iniquities and sins, how will I ever stand before you? He's concerned about his standing before God. Not whether... Others accept, other people accept him or whether he accepts himself. The psalmist's concern is will I be acceptable to God, to my God, to my maker? Will he accept me? There are uh, two Latin phrases that summarize, in a way, the way the people in the world uh, generally live their lives. Corum populus and Corum me before people and before me. Uh, the Latin phrase for how the psalmist is living, however, would be coram deo, before God. Okay. Uh, remember that song we used to sing in the youth group all the time? When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come. Remember that? All right, let's imagine that. When the music fades, church is gone, Christians are gone, everything's stripped away, and you simply come. It's just you before the Lord. It's simply you and God. What do you got? Confronting that, that's repentance. That's essential to repentance, to do it in the presence of God, to do it before him and before his character. You're not concerned at all with how does my pastor or fellow Christians view me, or even how I view me. How does God view me? That's at the heart of his repentance. Because as you do that, you can also focus on his character, as he does in verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But with you, as in unlike others, with you, God, there's something utterly unique to you, to your nature, and that is forgiveness. It is part of his nature. I think we do have this tendency... To think that it's when we uh, feel really bad, uh, or you just feel s- really sorry, that is when God really begins to feel like forgiving you, right? The as your uh, sincerity level goes up, His level of mercy goes up. It's like we have to fuel His mercy. And kind of help him feel like forgiving us that's not biblical God is forgiving by nature Uh, with him there is forgiveness he doesn't need us to, to fuel his mercy to make him feel merciful towards us no it's God's forgiving nature that actually fuels our repentance it's his kindness that leads us to repentance not a repentance that leads us to his kindness And in that sense, repentance itself is God's gift to us, not something we offer as a gift to God. He makes it happen before we make it happen. How does he know that? As he beholds the character, the true character of God. And that's what repentance is about. Addressing him, beholding him, standing before him, quorum deo, and seeing what his character is truly like. And this is so important in our repentance because otherwise what you end up thinking of repentance is is that it is your righteous work. I deserve forgiveness because I've done repentance right. And even in repentance, therefore, the crazy irony is even in repentance you can sin. Even in repenting you coddle your pride and self-righteousness. I am doing this right. Right. True repentance is standing before God alone. His mercy alone, his character alone, crying out for that alone. Because you've got nothing left. You've hit rock bottom. You're in the depths. All you bring to him are your problems. Hi, God, it's me. I'm the problem. And then as you stand there before his character, his mercy, his mercies that are new every morning, he reassures you. He loves to reassure his people all throughout the scriptures. Your sins were like crimson, but they shall be as white as snow. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you, and I will remember them no more. He tells you, you're you're not only truly known and truly seen, you're also truly forgiven and loved. And a psalmist wants that to be the controlling factor in in his life, the, the controlling fear, if you will. letting the fear of god the awareness of him the fearful awareness of how god views me push out all the other fears the fear of even your own ability to ruin your life fear of other other people's merciless character the way they treat you but the fear of god to control you and until you get to a point where you realize god is bigger than all of these things so that assurance is the the fruit of our true repentance as we repent addressing god standing before him and beholding his true character he addresses us truthfully and comfortingly it's me hi i'm your forgiver i'm your savior i'm your redeemer and he reassures us that's how repentance works when is repentance bad right i mean the bible talks a lot about bad worship bad singing, and there's bad repenting. What is bad repenting? What is unbiblical repentance? It's when it's simply self-hate and self-flagellation. It's when sin is merely a moral issue that you deal with alone. It's when you stand before the mirror with your own conscience and you address yourself and you just echo, I'm the problem, it's me, and you spiral down in your guilt and shame and self-hatred. Until... And keep up with that, you'll become apathetic and numb. Because guilt and shame, they're tiring. They wear us out. They numb us. How is true biblical repentance different? Well, first, you're not alone. It's realizing that. You're not alone. When you're addressing the Lord, confronting the sin problem before Him, sin is something that's dealt with on a relational level more so than just a purely moral level. Now you're bringing this face-to-face with another person, the person you've offended, the person you've wronged, the person you've sinned against. And the resulting feeling, therefore, isn't self-hatred. It's grief. It's grief. Grief over the person whose heart you've broken. And And then the solution, therefore, is not simply to ease your guilt, ease your shame, and Better your self-esteem, it's to fix this broken relationship. And and for this person, hopefully, whose heart you've broken draws near to you with mercy and forgiveness, so you'll be healed. And you'll find your guilt truly removed, your shame truly undone as the relationship is truly restored. And in that you also gain the ability to even address yourself as, as one who is truly seen, truly loved. The way he sees you the way your forgiver sees you you understand that see that if if you've sinned and it leads you only to self-hate that probably means you're only standing in front of a mirror you're listening to the cultural psalmist you're giving yourself all the truth but not heavenly grace you're getting this diagnosis that you've heard of a thousand times but you're not getting the cure But if your sin leads you to grief, that means you're standing in front of a lover, not just a mirror, but a lover, Uh, someone whose heart you've broken, someone who who still remains with you to bring you both truth and grace, so that you will be fully seen and fully loved. The psalmist is he's doing the latter. He's he's meeting with a lover and he's getting both the truth and grace from him, he's trying to restore this broken relationship. That's his concern. That's his priority. He's not coming to God saying, God, just make me feel better about myself. God, I want to have this broken relationship with you mended. Now, for those of you who sat with me for you know couples counseling, when you were trying to you know, resolve conflicts with each other, but you knew. The point is not for you to... Through reconciliation, ease your own conscience, right? Or feel exonerated from a you know, sense of guilt. That's not what you ultimately come to couples counseling for. What do you really gain? You gain the person. You, you gain the relationship. That's what reconciliation is about. It's reassurance that what you've broken can, can be mended through mercy, through grace, through forgiveness. That's repentance and reconciliation with God. He's not there to make your conscience right and be done with you. He's trying to make your relationship with Him right. So you will stand before Him once again, like we sang, for you to stand before the throne of God above. And in your plea being this, this perfect love that has been given to you. And be reassured in that, that you are still loved. That's repentance. So it says in verse 5, that's what I wait for. In repentance, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. Not my words, not the words of my accuser. His words, in his words, I hope. He's saying the only way my soul will find rest is, is by knowing that my my love with god has been truly restored when when you do strip everything away i have a god who loves me standing before me so i will wait on him i'm not waiting on some feeling i'm not waiting on forgetfulness numbness i'm waiting on him i will wait for his words i will wait for the scriptures to speak speak life to me speak forgiveness to me speak I'll even wait patiently for the truth of his diagnosis to hit me that's a part of waiting because I don't want I don't want to give God a phony I'm sorry just so we can move things along I want to sit and wait for his scalpel to actually cut through my heart that's what in his word I hope is is including here my hope is not in my own moral perfectionism and avoiding all confrontation as if that would undo me. No, it's being, it's being totally seen by the God who is before me for who I truly am and so truly, really, truly heal me. And so during our time of confession, uh, we first pray our corporate confession out loud as you stand next to your spouse, Uh, your siblings your friends your children even and you do so without fear of backlash because we have an understanding here we're here to be fully seen by god for who we are not to champion our perfection and then we take a moment of silence hopefully to let that conviction sink in stand before the lord and let his word do its work and wait takes time sometimes it really takes time and you know, like we confessed today, I, when we prayed, we prefer to give ourselves over to our idols because we love our sins, and it seems too costly to fight against them. That's what I was thinking about during our silent confession. God, is that me? You please show me that that's me. We wait. And then we also, from his words, receive his words of reassurance, because as real and genuine as your convictions can be, so is his reassurance. The same words that cut you will heal you. So you wait for his word in hope. Hope to be seen. Hope to be healed. And, and nowhere else in Scripture does God speak more hopefully, truthfully to us than through his Son. Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 says, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he makes purification for our sins. Or as John 1.12 says, Jesus is the word of God dwelling among us, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. We're here to listen to him, to his authoritative voice, his moral voice, but also his merciful voice. Voice, his saving voice. So let's take Robert Murray McShane's advice here. For every one look at your sins, take ten looks at Christ. For every accusation you hear or speak to yourself, uh, take ten looks at his words. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at the cross. Take ten looks at his scars and see as you stand before him, as you stand before Christ, see how he has addressed you with his love. See how, how unacceptable he became for you on the cross so you would become acceptable to God. See how silent the, the judge was for Jesus' cry for help so, so your cry for mercy will always be heard. See how unforgiven Jesus is on the cross as he carries your punishment so that you might justly uh, be forgiven. See how he offers you infinite mercy um, by his suffering infinite wrath. Stand before that cross. That's your moment of Coram Deo. Through the word, through your prayers, stand before the cross and receive your reassurance there. Hear him say of you, Father, forgive him. Forgive her. Draw your reassurance from him as you pray to him in his name. And then take the next step, which is the last point, point number three. Go on his mission. This is an important point that we don't often hear associated with repentance, but it's actually vital uh, and biblical. Um, First, let's start here. It says in verse 7 in our text, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Why the mention of Israel? The psalmist is not just having this me and the God of mercy time. He also identifies himself as part of a nation, part of a people group that God has redeemed. And this is an allusion to God's promise to Abraham. God said, you will be a father of many nations through your offspring. The whole world will be blessed. And that was Israel, Israel's identity in that world, that Old Testament world. So to be a part of Israel always meant being part of God's global mission to the world. So that anybody who comes across Israel, is helped by Israel, saves Israel, or assists Israel, associates with Israel, can be redeemed as well. Israel was God's means of ministering to the rest of the world. The way that the New Testament communicates this is Jesus Christ is your Redeemer who came to redeem you and graft you into true, eternal, spiritual Israel. So therefore, Christians, you, you are ambassadors of his kingdom, ministers of his reconciliation. Meaning, there is equally a missional purpose behind why God forgives you and reconciles you to himself and redeems you. It's to send you out. It's so that you would go and minister to those around you. It's so that you would go and, with the peace you received, make peace with others. You who have been forgiven much, now you must forgive much. You who have been reconciled to God must must go now and be reconciled to your enemies. God saves his people in order to send his people on his mission. And this is really important because... Going on this mission, finding yourself on this mission is the way, according to the Bible, the way of confirming the genuineness of your repentance. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew 5.9. It's in your peacemaking that you confirm your true sonship in God's family. How is your peacemaking going those who are forgiven much love much Luke seven forty seven. it's in your forgiving of others that you confirm that you are truly forgiven uh, scripture is clear genuine repentance leads to genuine mission if you've ever wondered you know if your repentance is genuine Truth and I've had doubts of my, my my own repentance because sometimes right we feel like am I just parroting religious jargon? You know, the stuff I heard from Sunday school or from my pastor, am I just a broken record? Consider this. Are you on his mission? Are you a peacemaker? Are you a minister of reconciliation in your relationships to others? Are you becoming more full of grace and truth? That's how we confirm this the genuineness of our repentance, the genuineness of the peace we have with God. It's in your peacemaking with others. So, throughout this week and the coming weeks, I want to, what I hope we will explore together, especially in our community groups, is, is what this means. What does it mean to be a peacemaker in my home? In my friendships in my marriage in my relationship with my siblings parents in the workplace in my classroom explore also uh, areas in our lives where we need to replace replace our anger with forgiveness replace our agitation with compassion how we need to focus more on the log Than the speck, the log in my own eye, more than the speck in the others. Let's explore this together. And as a church, right, honest before God, coram deo, right, see if we are truly drawing nearer to Him and His mission and living this life as sons and daughters of God. That's how we know we're headed to the kingdom. What did Jesus say? As, he, as soon as he comes out and declares his ministry is now open, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent. That's how you know you enter in. So not only being reconciled to God, and that is good news, but now going out, going forth, and being reconciled to one another. May God help us in this. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we turn to you for help. We cry out to you uh, for mercy, for grace, and for love. So that, Lord, uh, we, we do move beyond uh, receiving this amazing gift of your salvation to offering your peace, offering your forgiveness uh, to our neighbors. I pray that, Lord, this would be... Uh, Increasingly a reality we, we experience and enjoy as a church. May we encourage one another in this, in this journey of going on your mission together. Becoming better peacemakers uh, to our neighbors. Better ministers of your reconciliation. So Lord, uh, fill us with your spirit. And guard our hearts, our thoughts, our minds, our words. And send us out, Lord. Uh, send, us, send us out into your mission field and use us as your instruments as you are continuing uh, to reconcile the world to yourself. But we ask all of these things uh, in your Son's merciful name. Amen.